0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. And good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. It's session six on Morgoth's Ring as we continue to kind of... I, I know that for some it's, it's going to feel like a slog. It feels a little bit to me like a slog in places. Uh, this stuff is... I mean, it's really fascinating stuff, but it's very... Like, it requires very close comparison, not only of the texts that we're reading with the published Silmarillion, but with each other and with ones back in previous volumes. It's... um uh, this section of Morgoth's ring is not exactly beach reading, you know, um, but I think there's still a lot of really interesting nuggets that we can find and themes that we can follow. And again, trying to focus on that big picture. What and which? Again, my big question really always is, what is um, uh, what's the what's the story? Right? What's the big? Picture here um, what is happening to this story uh, as Tolkien is working with it right Where, what what is the what is the status of tolkien's relationship with his story I know it's it's complicated right but um, what is uh, what's going on there um, yeah it's really easy David to lose track of uh, when the passages were written compared with each other that is one of the hardest things to keep track of especially here and again I you know I'm not trying to uh, bash on Christopher Tolkien's work. I mean, obviously, what he's trying to present here in the is just b- ridiculously, massively complicated, uh, and I can totally see how what he has done in the presentation of the text here sort of makes it as readable as possible. But, um, but it's super tricky, David, to to get that uh, sorted out. Right? Here's the the thing to kind of try to stay anchored with, though. Right? The number one thing. So we're, what we're going to be talking about today is the phase one material, right? We're, going, we're we're still focusing on phase one of the later Quenta material. So we have... He sat down to rewrite the annals, right? And we've been looking at the annals, at least the first half of the annals, up until the departure of the Noldor from Valinor, or from the hiding of Valinor, really. Um, so um, we got that, right? The revision of the annals, and we saw the annals transform into something quite different from a narrative standpoint, right? Um, and then he goes back to the Quenta the Quenta Silmarillion that he wrote in 1937 and he begins revising that both by writing on the original manuscript making notes in the original manuscript and doing having that uh, that typescript done which then he makes more changes to right so that's what we've been looking at is that later quenta material the one of the things that really interests me most about the and so anyway hi, sorry david to finish what i was saying to you remember that all of this is happening the 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 Quenta stuff. This is all happening in 1951. So recall that Christopher was explaining that there were basically these two phases to when Tolkien revisited the Quinta Silmarillion material, right? One was in 1951, uh, you know, ish, right? When he went back to when he started doing the the emendations on the original Quenta manuscript that he had originally written back in 1937 and then had the typescript done up and did some revisions on that, uh, in the short term. So, and that's what Christopher's calling the first phase, right? The first phase is that first round of revisiting the Quinta text, uh, from the early fifties, from 1951. He's going to come back to it in the late fifties again. He's going to set it aside when he's doing the final revision stuff to get the Lord of the Rings published, right? Remember that's going to happen in the middle, in in mid fifties, you know, 1954. Uh, so, um, after 1951, he's going to be focused on, on, on cleaning up The Lord of the Rings and getting that set for publication, and then it's going to get published, and he's then going to be occupied with like post-publication stuff with The Lord of the Rings, uh, including editions and revisions and some of that Book of Lost Tales, not Book of Lost Tales, excuse me, Unfinished Tales material, that is, all that supplemental material from The Lord of the Rings that he ended up going back and fleshing out in response to people's letters and uh, some of his own further contemplations and things like that. Um, So he's gonna be doing so he's not gonna return again to the Silmarillion and the Quenta stuff until the late fifties. So there's that's why we we're getting that like seven year gap in between what Christopher is calling phase one and phase two of the later Quenta Silmarillion. I'm gonna try to get as far as I can through phase one tonight, uh and then next week we will resume with phase two or get to phase two at least. Um which is, again, when he returns to it in the late 50s, right? So conceptually, try to hold that the main thing to be holding in your mind through this section as we're reading through this later Quenta stuff is that all of this stuff, it's after the earliest stuff that we read before, like the Anu stuff, right? Uh, it's before that. That stuff has already been done. Um, but it's still in this first wave, right? After he's completed the manuscript or in the last stages of completing the story of the Lord of the Rings, when he was beginning working on things like the Ainulindale and the early annals. And uh, now he's, uh, you know, he and, he and he's doing the Quenta stuff too, right? In that, that first wave, so, you know, very late 40s up through 19, you know, 1948 to 1951, right around in there. Um, is this, so this is, this all of this stuff is still like first generation, post-Lord of the Rings conceptualizing Silmarillion stuff, right? And then he's going to finish the Lord of the Rings, then he's going to come back to it again, right? Now, the thing that's really complicated and that I can't keep straight and that Christopher has, like, explicitly thrown up his hands on and says he can't keep straight either is which came first, the Annals or the Quenta, right? Uh, because it seems like the evidence that Chris- that uh, Christopher was putting forward uh, here uh in the phase one material um is th- I mean the evidence suggests that Tolkien was actually working on them both at the same time. Um which I don't know feels weird to me. like I do not I d I I don't I don't I don't get that. I I, I have a heart especially when the annals had clearly I mean, we already talked about that, right? We already were looking at the narrative drift within the annals and how by the time he got like halfway through the annals, you know, by the time, certainly by the time we got up to the Darkening of Valinor and really even earlier than that, right? um, The annals had already become, uh, had drifted into this much larger uh, and more immediate narrative. It was no longer certainly anything like a catalog of events that happened year by year. Right. Um, so if there's like one thing that would seem clear, it's that we're ditching the annals genre. Right. And yet he doesn't ditch the text instead of being like, oh, right, this is great. Like, I, you know, I'm I'm in a groove right? I'm in the I'm doing the darkening of Valinor and I'm in a groove and I'm writing this um, instead of just like saying decreeing like, OK, this is my text. This is my story. Let me do this, and then I'll incorporate stuff from the Quenta and everything. No, instead, apparently, he's going back and forth. He's, like, writing that Annals story, and then he's setting it aside, and he's picking up the Quenta stuff and continuing to make Quenta revisions and write whole new texts for the Quenta, different versions of the same stories that he's writing in the annals. How does that work? Why does he do that? I don't know. That I can't track. There's a lot, there's a lot of ways in which I can at least convince myself that I understand. I, I, a lot of this, of course, is imaginary narrative, right? That is me imagining how Tolkien is approaching it, and I might be completely wrong about that. But this one, I have to admit, cannot wrap my brain around why he continues to go, forth between, go back and forth between the annals and the Quenta. The only... I was thinking about that a lot as I was reading through the phase one material again and, and preparing for class tonight. And I'm not going to explain my whole answer because we should, I hope, be able to see some of it as we're going through. But um, but it was one of the big questions I was asking myself. Like, like There's got to be a reason why you do that, right? I mean, it's if it were a matter of two totally different narrative styles, right? I mean, if one, if he really were writing a set of annals and then really were writing the Quintus Silmarillion, again, in, back in 1937, he was going to include both of those things as separate parts of, like, the overall Silmarillion package, right? He, so, and that seemed to be his plan. So th- that he started revising both of those is no surprise because that was the original plan. But once the annals had left the... <laughs> had been left the building, right? Once the annals had taken off the runway and become something different, um, you know, why didn't he just combine the two? I, there has to be an answer to that. Like there has to be a reason for him to keep these two parallel duplicate essentially. I mean, not precisely duplicate, but I mean, he's retelling exactly the same story in two different ways. Um, uh, very, very, very similarly, but not identically, and doing them both at the same time. Why would you do that? There has to be a reason for doing that, and I think I have some ideas about what that reason might be. I'm not sure I really get it, but there has to be uh, some reasons uh, for that. Um, yeah, Jennifer says it's like uh, Kings versus Chronicles. Yeah, I was just 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 been rereading. 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Jennifer. So I've been thinking about that, actually. Um, But see, the thing is, is like, there's a reason for Kings and Chronicles, I'm sure, but I don't think it has anything to do with one guy writing both texts at the same time. That's the thing. Like, who would do that, right? I mean, I could see why you could have one text... Uh, you know, of, like, you know, Davidic history, Davidic and Solomonic history that you would preserve, and another one that's pretty close to it but not quite identical that you'd also preserve, right? But, like, to be one guy writing the one story and to be going back and forth writing the same story in two very slightly different ways, that's the part that's harder for me to understand. Um, It certainly could, David Adley, be just sort of Tolkien's desire to not throw anything away, yeah, except like what would he even be throwing away? That's my question. Like I'm not even saying obviously he should scrap one of these and just keep the other. What I'm saying is like why not combine them? I mean, they're obviously the same story now. They're like what what's what is it about them that in Tolkien's mind keeps them on separate in separate piles even, right? Why not do uh, you know, sort of this obvious kind of combination, um, but anyway. So that, that was, this is the question that was bugging me, uh, and that I was thinking about as I was looking through uh, phase one, and I hope that we can um, um, we can make some observations uh, about that. And let's see uh, a bunch of really interesting theories popping up uh, that you guys are suggesting. Love those. Let's get some data first, and then we'll then we'll see. I, Wanted to just kind of establish the question, uh, and uh, and we'll see. Not not all of the passages that I want to talk about relate directly to this, but I think we'll be able to begin to see a pattern emerging. Some of the things, of course, I want to talk about are just individual items of uh, of interest, uh, right? As we see the the, the story, uh, the story that we're familiar with, or characters that we're familiar with, sort of coming uh, sort of coming out at certain moments. Um, also, a couple. Interesting themes that we have seen him wrestling with in both texts, right? That we will be able to track a little bit more of today. All right, so let's uh, let's jump back in. Uh, look at uh, greenness and darkness. So this is uh, right after the uh, destruction of the lamps. Um, well, no, we'll get to the destruction of the lamps as we'll see. In those days, the dwelling of the Valar was upon an isle in a great lake, in the midst of the Middle Earth that Aule had built. There the light of the lamps mingled, and growth was swiftest and fairest. And behold, in the blending of Iluin and Ormal, there came forth greenness, and it was new. And Middle-earth rejoiced, and the Valar praised the name of Yavanna. But Melkor, hearing of these works, and being filled with wrath and envy, returned secretly to Arda out of the darkness, and gathered his strength in the north, and he marred the labors of Yavanna, so that the growth of earth was corrupted and many monstrous things were born." Then coming with war against the Valar suddenly he cast down the lamps, and night returned, and in the fall of the pillars of Iluin and Ormal the seas arose and many lands were drowned. Okay, so uh I, this is a story we've now heard many times, right? Um what I find what I found really interesting about this this time is I think this is another example, and we've seen this on a few other occasions, the same kind of thing, um where Uh, You know, in the category of issues that we see Tolkien repeatedly sort of wrestling with or developing, to say it more neutrally, right, um, is the characterization of Melkor, right? The basic facts, like what happened and, and, you know, there are obviously changes even to the basic outline of things. How many times he comes to Middle-earth and goes away and that kind of thing. But it's one thing to just have the plot facts, to shift around the plot facts, right? It's another thing uh, to really have a clear grasp, um, uh, to really have a clear grasp on the characters, right? Why? I mean, remember back in the Ina Lindelay, Christopher was emphasizing how much more complicated, as he revised the Ina Lindelay, how much more complicated uh, the Trend of Melkor and the Valar's interactions was becoming right. Um, I, how many times they kicked him out, and then he came back, and they kicked him out, and he came back. Um, and when we were looking at those passages at the time, comparing those later Ainulindale passages to the earlier Ainulindale passage, and remember that stuff was back in the uh, a, a few years back, right in the late forties, like nineteen forty eight ish. So. Um when we were looking at that we were concluding together that that seemed to be primarily the primary theme of the of those changes seemed to be the characterization of Melkor and I think that we can see the same thing here as well and Brian that's exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking of Brian is recalling the old story of Melkor destroying the lamps back in the book of lost tales right and back in the book of lost tales this is when the destruction of the lamps Was something like a great practical joke by Melko at the expense of the rest of the Valar, right? Those of you who have... Uh, uh, either read the Book of Oz Tales recently enough or uh, have uh, uh, remember the class that we did together will recall that he did that by building the pillars out of ice. He was like, oh, I'll help you build the pillars, right? But he, unbeknownst to everybody else, made them out of ice so that when they lit the lamps and everyone was like, yay, the lamps are beautiful! But then they melted, right? The pillars melted and falled over and crashed and the lamps were destroyed and the land was uh, made ruin and, and, you know, Melkor, like, laughed and ran. Um... Uh, that's Brian Dimick's point. Is Melkor was like at least part trickster back then. and That was definitely an element that we could see. And the destruction of the lamps, the whole ice pillars thing, um, was definitely uh, a kind of a trickster, uh, sort of a Loki-ish element uh, in Melkor uh, at the beginning. Um, I definitely would say. That element seems to be almost entirely gone here. Look at the, uh, the... So, Brian, really glad that you were recalling that, because I think that that is... If we, if we can remember, if we can hold the Book of Lost Tales version in our heads for a second, we will see, I think, most keenly the different direction, like how Melkor's character has grown in Tolkien's mind, right? According to this passage now, just so for a second now, just focus on this paragraph... Why does Melkor do it? Why does Melkor A return to Middle Earth in order to B destroy the lamps? What motivates him to do it? That's a great point, Jennifer. I'll come back to that in just a second. Yeah, Mary, there's 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 envy. Yes, it's primarily envy, right? He perceives the not just now notice the emphasis, right it isn't just that they're happy it isn't just that it's beautiful that stuff goes back from the very beginning that was true. Right? That the, you know, oh, the bliss of the springtime of, of Arda, you know, and like everyone was happy and everything was beautiful and it was great. And Melko was like, ha ha, let me see what I can do about that. Right? That was true from the beginning. And so that element of kind of envy, right? But Margaret, exactly. It's it's the greenness, right? That word is never, be, I don't believe that word has ever been used in this before. It's, it's not just about the word, right? But notice how he character how Tolkien characterizes, the thing that triggers melkor right the thing that triggers melkor is this wondrous work of yavanna right it's not just the valar happy it's not just arda is beautiful it's not just everything is peaceful and blissful and he comes in and says i've had enough of, i'm you know i'm going to puke if i have to look at this more i'm going to i'm going to take it down instead he comes in and he sees this remarkable thing that Yavanna has brought forth greenness and it was new and middle-earth rejoiced and the valar praised the name of Yavanna Yavanna has wrought an individual vala has wrought a great work has brought forth a new and wonderful thing greenness right the 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 glory of the growth upon arda right the growth upon middle earth the growth of the plants and that thing is beautiful right and veronica you're right it's a capital g greenness like it's this is the greenness the the life the vitality the beauty all of that put together right greenness kind of puts all that stuff together right this is the invention of Yovana. Yovana has thought this, right? This is a thing brought forth by Yovana's part of the song. Right? This is this is this is like I don't know how many measures of uh of solo Yovana gets here, right? But it's it's kinda like that, right? Everybody else kinda dies down and Yovana plays a solo here in the music for a little bit and everyone is like this is awesome. And seeing uh, seeing the awesomeness of what Yavanna has done and hearing everybody else praise her, right? But Melkor, hearing of these works and being filled with wrath and envy, returned secretly to Arda out of the darkness and gathered his strength in the north, right? Um, so... Yes, exactly. We see him wrathful when anyone else earns praise independent of him. Brian, exactly, and George. Yeah, he does seem to be envious of the praise, right? That that seems to trigger him here, right? Um, and that I think is uh, uh, is an important thing to again this that element that's like that kind of this seems to be a development, right? Again, Tolkien refining the concept of what it is. That makes him fall. And look at what he does. Again, This is the actions are similar. It goes into the north and now there's corruption and there's monsters and stuff. Yeah, that's always been true, right? But again, in the context now with the greenness and everything, notice the new weight of that, right? Uh, gathered his strength in the north and he marred the labors of Yovana, so that the growth of earth was corrupted and many monstrous things were born, right? So what does he do? What's his response? Is his response to snuff it out? No, his response is to corrupt it, right? Um, and to give birth to monsters to twist it into monstrosity. The, that's, you know, a, 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 almost like he's saying, yeah, well, how do you like that now? Right? Look what I can do to it. Right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Notice the implications of this. And here's the other thing that I really have been enjoying thinking about a lot uh, as we've been doing Morgoth's Ring is remembering that uh, because this is this is one of the things uh, that. This is one of the things that, which has been so rewarding for me, actually, in our study of of uh, the history of Middle Earth series here. Um, I've never studied the history of Middle Earth in this much detail before. I've never gone through page by page and chapter by chapter and, and worked it all through. And the way this is why I'm so grateful you guys are letting me do this because uh, it's been fantastic and I've learned so much. Um, but one of the things that I could never really keep straight before is which bits, you know, I'd be reading a part of the Silmarillion and I'm like, wait, is this, does the Lord of the Rings exist when he wrote that? Right. Because I would you know, come across something. I mean, I, I, you know, I know things like the reference to Gandalf and stuff like that are, are, are obvious, but there are other bits that weren't so obvious. Right. Um, and um, anyway, so I love keeping track of the fact. Right. Remembering the fact that there are some definite ways in which we can see and we've talked about this on and off in which the Lord of the Rings, right, in which what Tolkien wrote and what Tolkien did in the Lord of the Rings um, is influencing the Silmarillion. Now, not just sort of stylistically, not just in genre terms like we were talking about at the beginning, but specifically, specific concepts, specific ideas. Notice what he's working in here. Um, what happens what do we see, right? You're in Middle-earth. And you're approaching the abode of somebody who's quite noticeably evil. What do you expect to find? Right? What does their garden look like? <laughs> right? I mean, what's... Exactly, David Attlee, you find uh, desolation. Desolation. Is what you look for. It's what you should look for, right? Exactly. Mary was thinking the same thing, exactly. Desolation. It's a a a, a pattern we see clearly, right, from the desolation of Smaug, right, even to Isengard, right. And to of course that that like that wonderful description that that one that includes the image of like you know as if the the the, the, the mountains uh, had vomited the filth of their entrails. I right? remember that passage right before they get to the uh, to the dead marshes uh, in book four. Um, the, the the you know Sam says it makes me sick right when he's looking at the uh, the the uh, you know uh, no man's land before the black gate. Um, this, it's, you You can observe it. It's not stated explicitly in The Lord of the Rings, but it is a clearly observable pattern that this is just a side effect of evil, right? Evil just does this, right? Look what he's done here, right? Having established, this, Tolkien's noticed that pattern too, right? Uh, he's a very, very good reader of his own text. What is he doing? He's now working that back into the fundamental theology, right? Why does that happen? Where does that come from? Well, here's the first example. Here's the first ever desolation of evil that ever was in history, right? Because, and it is its root is in Melkor's reaction, his envy and wrath at the accomplishment, the beauty of the greenness, um, the glory of yavana's accomplishment and the praise of everybody else for that accomplishment and so he sets himself in both wrath and envy the the twisting of things into desolation uh, and corruption uh, is the natural outflow of that wrath and envy we see it dramatized here um uh, in uh, in in you know in this sort of first uh, you know, sort of mythic, uh, 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 sort of iconic moment, right? Um, yeah, Veronica is pointing out the, the 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 new and monstrous creatures, right? Creatures not found in normal areas. Yeah, there is. It's not just destruction, right? It's not merely you made lots of things grow, and I'm going to kill them all, right? It's not just that. I'm going to take them and twist them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna one up you. Not by competing with you, not by, like, you've made something bright and beautiful and I'm going to make something brighter and more beautiful. No, because that's not the spirit of it, right? I'm going to take this thing that you did, this concept of greenness, right? This concept of life and growth and beauty. I'm going to take that and I'm going I'm to use it against you, right? I'm going to twist it. I'm going to take your beautiful creatures and I'm going to make them monstrous, right? I'm going to create new things, too. And my new things are going to chase down your new things and eat them. Right? Uh, envy and wrath. Right? Um, exactly, Jennifer. He's going to make an ungreenness. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, Anyway, so uh, I, I I love this Margaret exactly. It's his blaring music all over again. We can see a similarity to the pattern um, uh, of uh, from the from the music of the Ainur back when. So, continuing to see interesting growth in the character of Melkor and watching Tolkien process again not only the traditional concepts of Melkor's story with the Valar, but again even seeing some elements. Stuff that he himself has learned about his own world from the Lord of the Rings and working that back in some quite subtle ways. I mean, honestly, it's like one sentence, right? That's different here. And by the way, I don't remember. Somebody look it up. Um, uh, is that is that word greenness in the published Silmarillion? I don't think it is. I, I don't think Christopher included that. Um, but... But anyway, we can see him kind of working through that at this point. Let's keep going. All right. But the other Valar seldom, came seldom thither, and in the north Melkor built his strength and gathered his demons about him. These were the first made of his creatures. Their hearts were of fire, but they were cloaked in darkness, and terror went before them. They had whips of flame. Balrogs they were named by the Noldor in later days. And in that dark time, Melkor made many other monsters of divers shapes and kinds that long troubled the world. Yet the orcs were not, yet the orcs were not made until he had looked upon the elves, and he made them in mockery of the children of Iluvatar. His realm spread now ever southward over the Middle Earth. Um, okay. I uh, Yeah, Karita, that's a really interesting question. Karita asks she says, I wonder if Melkor likes hurting Yavanna Personal like, is it personal? Or is it just about self aggrandizing and the cruelty is just incidental? Um I think I mean I don't think that hurting Yovana's feelings is his goal. I think that self aggrandizement is his goal. I think one upsmanship is his goal. I think asserting his own dominance and superiority is his goal. Um but envy, envy is envy is a special kind of sin it differs from the other seven deadly sins uh in in an important way um and that is it is all about competition with other people pride is too to a certain extent um i mean if there were nobody else to feel superior to pride would be slightly thwarted um but It could still exist, even if you didn't have the works of others to compare it to. You could still think very, very highly indeed of your own self, uh, even without points of comparison. But envy? Envy is all about uh, Carita in this way fixating on other people, right? Um, It's one of the reasons why uh, envy was... uh, The object not only of sort of criticism in the Middle Ages, for instance, but scorn, right? I mean, like, you might brag about being wrathful or even proud, perhaps, but nobody bragged about being envious, right? And there's something pitiful, something weak about uh, being envious, right? Right always looking out the corner of your eye at what other people have and comparing yourself to them and trying to get ahead of them and, uh, get what they have and, and, uh, uh, you know, put them in their place and all that kind of thing. Um, by calling it envy, uh, Tolkien is, um, uh, attributing that motivation to him. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, but he um uh he doesn't but I don't think that he thinks that that's his main motivation, right? Um I think in in he would say that he was wrathful, right? Um that you know Yavana is this like jumped up nobody who's getting all this credit and all this glory in his realm which he's named unto himself right um he would focus on the wrath um but the narrator is directing us uh to his envy as well um yeah and now i'm being careful i don't want those of you who are talking about his jealousy i don't want you to think i'm 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 not disagreeing with you. I'm quibbling a little bit because I'm, I'm trying to be careful there. What he's showing here is envy, not jealousy. Uh, in the classical sense of these words, and I absolutely would read these words in the, in the, in the older sense when they're used in the Silmarillion, um, jealousy means like protecting that which you have, right? Jealousy can be bad. It doesn't have to be bad, um, Uh, but jealousy can be bad. In my mind, the, um, the classic image of jealousy is a child wrapping his arms around a toy and saying, mine, mine, right. That's jealousy. That's not, that's you know, so envy when you're looking at somebody else and you're, and like you see everybody praising the other person and nobody's paying enough attention to you. And it just like makes you want to gnaw your tongue and get back at them and bring them down a peg. That's not jealousy. That's envy. Um, we use the words interchangeably nowadays, but we've lost something by doing that. There's an important distinction there and we no longer have a word uh, for that. Um, it's one of the reasons why exactly, uh, as a couple of you are recalling, this is why a lot of people misunderstand Exodus <laughs> when God says, I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. And everyone's like, well, that's nothing to be proud of, <laughs> right? What he's saying is, uh, he's saying to the nation of Israel, I'm not going to share you, right? Don't worship any other gods because I'm jealous. I want you to myself, right? I'm not going to share you with anybody else. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're establishing an exclusive relationship. This is not an open marriage, right? That's what God was saying when he talks about jealousy in that sense. But anyway, okay. Okay. Um, uh, Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, Sharon and uh, Stephen both were saying they did not find greenness in the published somewhere. I didn't think so. Uh, so interesting that that line didn't make the cut, but I think it's really, really interesting. Um, uh, okay. Um, good. Oh, excellent. James Liebach has found that there, there's a, a probably a later revision of it Um that there is, uh, uh, there is the idea that in the dwelling of the Valar, new-made green was yet a marvel in the eyes of the makers. Yeah, yeah, I remember that line from the published Silmarillion. Yeah, so we don't get the the, the noun greenness, and I don't think it's in exa- it's in this context exactly. But that that idea of the glory of Yavanna and the new-made green uh, is still, though it doesn't strike I think nearly as hard. In that like, new-made green sounds a little bit like a green thing that's recently been made, right? Rather than the concept of greenness, which is itself new and a marvel. Uh, but anyway, um, okay, sorry, going back from my tangent. And indeed, the reason I wanted to go back from my tangent is because I thought I'd talk about this passage. (laughs) So in this passage, as several of you very faithfully started observing before, um, before I went off the rails talking about greenness and envy and jealousy, um, I, um, I, several of you, of course, were noticing the very, very striking thing about this passage, which is that not only is he clearly manufacturing orcs, right? Not corrupting elves here. But he's making, he's manufacturing Balrogs. The Balrogs have the distinction of being the first made of his creatures. And we don't get a recipe exactly, but we do get the elements that he put together. Hearts of fire, cloak of darkness, terror, whips of flame, right? Your basic Balrog ingredients. Naturally, because that's what the Balrog in the Lord of the Rings looks like, right? So we've got that pretty well set now. Um, the Cloak of Darkness, which everyone is going to mistake for wings uh, because of the what has turned out in retrospect to be the unfortunate metaphor of the wings. Um, but, uh, uh, so uh, David Urbach, going back to your point at the beginning, um, uh, about the chronology right, and keeping the chronology straight, we know this is like right around in that like you know nineteen forty eight to nineteen fifty one window right that this was happening um but again, annals versus uh uh versus Quenta, which one comes first really hard to say and he and the, and he seems to be going back and forth um this issue, of course, is one of the major issues that we've been tracking, at least that I've been certainly very interested in, because it's a wonderfully, um, well, it's it's a wonderfully interesting test case for the basic question, right? Of what is the impact that the Lord of the Rings has on the Silmarillion? One of them, as we've saw, as we saw from the beginning, was Tolkien having to think through the philosophical and theological implications of the things, making the kind of often whimsical mythology of the earlier legendarium world work consistently, not only internally consistently, but consistent with the Lord of the Rings as well. And one of the big challenges we've seen from the beginning is this question, right? So his assertion of the theological theological premise, right? Evil cannot create. It can only destroy. It can only corrupt and pervert. And so therefore... Orcs which were very explicitly manufactured constructs back in the day, um, uh, that's off the table now, and so the theory about elves being uh, uh, kidnapped, tortured, and perverted uh, into orcs enters at this stage, right? But it is it would be simpler. I would kind of like it in 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 one sense, I would like it if we knew for a fact that he had made up his mind about that and he had, uh, and therefore when we see him doing this, right, a passage like this, where he's talking about the making of orcs instead of the corrupting of elves into orcs. Well, that proves this is an earlier text because we know he had made that a a point was made when he made that decision. So if he's still talking about making it's before, if it's, if he's, if he's talking about, you know, perverting, it comes after, Right. It would be awesome to be able to assert that, right? Except we know that that's not true. We know that that can't be happening because we have also seen, we just saw um, earlier on in the Quenta material, him explicit, no, in the late um, Annals material, him explicitly reject the elf explanation. Him go back on this, right? He has asserted it, Right. But we, we've seen him question it and cross it out and say, no, no, that orcs didn't come from elves. Let's get rid of that story, right? And what's more, this passage, this is different. This is not just, uh, I'm going to go back to the orc story. This is, I'm going to double down on the making, right? The Balrogs were not manufactured before. I don't think we've ever had the Balrogs manufactured before, did we? Have we ever seen that? I mean, Gothmog, the lord of Balrogs, was his son in the Book of Lost Tales, back when the Valar were having kids, which, remember, was not so long ago, right? That concept was still in place. Um, So, you know, it was... um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon says, Unfortunate Wing Metaphors is going to be the name of his next band. Uh, That's good. Um, This sounds like a very significant reassertion, even an upping of the stakes of that, no, no, Melkor can make stuff, right? The orcs are constructs. uh, And and, hey, even the Balrogs are constructs, right? Um, Morgoth made them all. Um, remember I've said before, and I think that, um, uh, I mean, n- nothing that we've looked at has uh, uh, convinced me that this is not right. Um, I think that this is one of the biggest conceptual crises of Tolkien's whole later life, right? Um, he is here faced with a cruel decision. A cruel decision. Um, do I pitch Augustinian theology, right? This idea that evil does not have a, sub, you know, does not have, is not a positive thing, but only a negative thing, only a, only an absence, only a perversion, only a twisting of that which is good. Um uh, you know that uh, uh, good is, or evil is to good as darkness is to light. That is, it's not a positive thing. It's only the absence of that thing, right? There is no. You can't make a flash dark, right? It's not a thing, right? It's it's just a place where light isn't, uh, and evil is like that. Again, that's the Augustinian uh, concept of evil, um, which he is asserting, and he makes that choice as we've seen before in the Lord of the Rings. But so, on the one hand. Keeping the idea of orcs as constructs, and Balrogs, right, means he's got to be willing to get rid of that. But if he doesn't, if he keeps that, then he's going to have to, Stephen, exactly as you say, he's going to have to get rid of Gimli and Legolas's orc-killing contest, because if they're not constructs, right, if they are creatures howsoever corrupted or enslaved, um, but if they're children of Iluvatar. Um even warped and twisted, you can 't treat them like that you just can't um, Rachel asks, does the orcs being created fix the free will problem yeah yeah there's no reason to think that orcs have free will um if uh if they 're constructs right um yeah no they 're just they 're programmed for hatred right they're they 're programmed for. For for, and they can't be reprogrammed, right? You can't redeem them. Um, All you can do is decommission them, right? Which is what Gimli and Legolas do, uh, with great prejudice and even pleasure, right? Um, And you can see that he doesn't want that to happen, right? He doesn't want to let that go, Um, because I'm sure he knows the very serious difficulties that it's going to put and, and, and the issue here, it's a challenge with um, uh, it's a challenge with uh, not just the reconciliation of the Silmarillion text but the Lord of the Rings itself he wouldn't just have to revise the Silmarillion, he'd have to rewrite the Lord of the Rings if he's really going to be thorough about this and keep in mind how uncomfortable that is this passage I mean, there, is, there are great reasons for him to be like, St. Augustine, um, I love you, man, but you s- sit over there. Look, look over that way, St. Augustine. I'm going to go this way and write this story about Melkor making Balrogs and Orcs. Uh, because it's 1951. The Lord of the Rings is done. He's sending it out to publishers, right? He does not want to redo that. Think how much he would have to rewrite. It's not just passages, right? I mean, it is part of the weave of the story. Orcs and the attitude towards orcs. I mean, that, wow, that is a retcon job, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, uh. Yeah. So really, really difficult, really, really challenging. Um, and I think this seems to be, at the very least, an experiment, right? Let's let's see if we can go back to solution A, right? Let's just, um, again, sort of Pache St. Augustine and return to Melchor as Maker and moving on. So, M- Mary, when I say constructs, yes, automata essentially, right? Um, Not automata in the sense that he's remotely operating them, right? I I don't think that we have to imagine Melkor as drone operator. He is infusing them with some of his spirit. Remember the passages here which I think are directly connected to all of this, about Melkor infusing his uh, creatures with his spirit, right? And lessening himself thereby, right? So some of his own um, the difference between Melkor as orc maker, right? And Aule as dwarf maker, which remember hasn't happened yet. Right? We don't we've we've not had that story. The story of the making of the dwarves in the full version. That that's one of the elements of the published Silmarillion that we've never yet seen, right? Um So but but remembering ahead to use the phrase I was coining last night in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, remembering ahead to the Aule and Yovana chapter and Aule and the dwarves. Iluvatar says to uh, to Aule, they're gonna they're only gonna operate when you focus on them, and they're gonna remain still. Otherwise, right? That's because Aule has not done what Melkor has done, right? He has not emptied himself. He was trying to make students that he could teach, but he was not distributing his, you know, pouring his own spirit into them in the way that Melkor did do. So the orcs are. I, I, the reason I was using the word construct instead of automata, um, uh, Mary, is that automata does, uh, automaton does sound like, uh, it implies, rather, um, like a, a a thing which is passive and less remotely operated. And the orcs were clearly never that, right? They're not that. But they are constructs in the sense that they are, they're built, not born, Right. Um, he puts them together so they're, they're they're more like golems or they're more like uh, robots uh, almost, but again they're not robots either because their programming is not it's not a physical programming it's a spiritual programming. Um, if anything, what they're like is like the ring of power, a bitty version, right? They are like one one millionth of the ring of power. Um, just as Sauron poured a big percentage of his own native spirit and power into the ring, so Sauron, sorry, sorry, so Melkor poured a bunch of his spirit into the race of the orcs, right? All, collectively. Um, anyway, okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, James says, can you have half orcs if they're constructs? An excellent question, James. I have to say, yeah, because I I have no doubt. Okay, listen to me. <laughs> Why not? Maybe I should. But uh, all right, James, let me go on and finish the sentence I was just about to rattle off without thought. Um, I was going to say I have no doubt that the orcs uh, reproduce sexually. Um, that they're they're self generating. You don't have to just manufacture new orcs. There you know, I don't think that he Melkor necessarily is maintaining a continual orc assembly line, uh, in Angband. But maybe I should doubt that. In fact, um, what evidence do I have of that? I'm not really sure exactly. Um, uh, I'm not really sure. Um, And James, actually, I think perhaps the reason I'm so quick to say that is I am remembering half-orcs, right? If you've got half-orcs, that is something which could conceivably be done in a laboratory. And there's nothing in Treebeard's statement about the mingling of orcs and men that absolutely rules out a manufactory kind of uh uh laboratory process right it's possible that would be consistent with treebeard's words about that um but so would forcible crossbreeding uh of two genetically compatible species um, uh, yeah uh, Tomas says uh, if they're half orc the question is what is the other half are we sure it's men yeah Treebeard does say that explicitly mingling the races of, of orcs and men um, now Treebeard could be wrong right but uh, uh, probably not um, uh, yeah yeah um, yeah David I agree that the the fact that they're still around and appear to be they appear to thrive and their numbers to increase in the absence of any evil overlord supervision, right? Um, the goblins of the Misty Mountains being an excellent example, is it conceivably possible that, you know, Sauron in, in Dol Guldur has, like, uh, you know, st- cranked up the orc factory again uh, and is churning out new orcs, some of which are, you know, going back up into the Misty Mountains? Yeah, that's possible, but no, I don't think that that's what's happening at all. I think um, it seems very, very likely, based on the continuation of the orcs uh, and their uh, spreading, that they reproduce sexually. Um, so you just have to, if we're going to go with this, right, or if Tolkien's going to go with this, um, he's going to have a go at the Morgoth making things and uh, hoping St. Augustine doesn't notice, then he, has to, he he's going all the way with it right? And saying that, you know, orcs are still not, they don't have free will. Orcs don't have free, if orcs are made, I think it does solve the free will problem, right? Because they're not, and this comes back, this an, this is the answer to the question that one of you had, uh, George. Um, why can't a creature made by Melkor turn good if the children of Iluvatar can turn evil? Because Iluvatar what Iluvatar does in his act of creation is different from what any of the Valar can do in their act of creation, even under these circumstances where Melkor's making stuff, right? Um, and this, again, we can still hear that in the later uh, concept, right, of the, with the, the Aule and Yavanna stuff with the dwarves, um, that Iluvatar is basically, you know, says, like, I, I can create new souls, right? New creatures that are entirely new and have free will of their own and who are able to contribute to the music and the formation of creation like the Valar did as he brought them forth as well, right? Um, uh, But none of the Valar can do this. So even this, even if we're going to say yeah, no, it's fine, Melkor can make stuff uh, this still doesn't Change that fundamental fact, George, I would say. He doesn't have the uh, uh, the imperishable flame. Melkor doesn't. He wanted it, but he doesn't have it, right? He cannot make creatures with free will. He can make constructs and he can put his own spirit in them. He can make them live and he can make them survive and breed and move, and go on um, and continue to perform his will and enact his will because a bit of his will is in each one of them, right? But it doesn't have free will. It can't choose. Thus, an, an orc, a constructed orc in this way, um, cannot be, cannot have a moral crisis, right? It just can't. It won't, it wouldn't, yeah, Jennifer, it's another way to think about it. They would not have their own spirit, right? To use the uh, the words which he hasn't developed yet, but he will, um, uh, the Thea and the Hroa, the spirit and the body, right, which combine in, in all of the incarnate races, right? Um, orcs don't have that. They don't have a Thea of their own. Um, they have a body, and their body is infused with some of the spirit of Milkor himself, right? It's not—they don't have their own spirits, Um yeah, yeah, but Kevin, this is more substantial than what Aule did with the dwarves until Iluvatar adopted them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but in that, in this, in the, in this sense, Kevin, it would be uh, the orcs, the constructed orcs, would be more than the. So, if we think of Aule's dwarves, think of Ale's dwarves as he made them, and again. It hasn't happened yet, but in in the as to, when, when Tolkien works out this story, right, um, we've got the, the 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 automata dwarf dwarves that um, Ale first makes, and then we've got the you know stepchildren of Iluvatar, right after Iluvatar's adoption, right, and the orcs are kind of in the middle. They're more. ...than the dwarves as Aule first made them, but they're lesser than the dwarves as Iluvatar makes them. Because Eluvatar has the power and does, in fact, make the choice to gift them with spirits of their own from him, right? Um, and so, you know, he, he, can, he can do that. Um, so, David, are orcs now? No. Orcs are not now. Um, no. Not in, And th- that's why it would be OK. That's why it would be OK. Uh, and even a good thing and even a meritorious act to slaughter as many as you can, because when you're when you slaughter an orc, you are just decommissioning a machine programmed purely for evil. Right. A machine which is merely an instrument of hatred and malice mm-hmm. and cruelty. That is all that it is. That is all that it is for. And its destruction is the only way to neutralize it. And there's no, again, there's, you're not slaying a soul. There's no question of, uh, of moral culpability or of, again, you know, like should we be trying to convert them instead or anything like that? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Nancy asks, shouldn't Melkor mind more when orcs get killed? Yeah, I have no idea what happens to the bit of Melkor's soul that is in an orc when it dies. Can he recycle it? Does it go back to him? Uh, you know, I don't know. Where does the... Uh, the That spirit seems to be pro uh, uh, reproducible, right? I mean, if they're able to sexually reproduce and... Uh, and and thrive, then then that that same spirit is... I'm not saying it's not without problems, right? There are issues here, right? And the questions that you guys are asking are are getting exactly to those. Karina, great question, right? If orcs don't have souls, what about half orcs? I know, right? They have half a soul, so it's okay, right? So all you have to do, if you mortally wound a half orc, (laughs) right, you're okay. But I mean, yeah, Um, Karina, exactly as you say, this is a real ethical pickle, right? No question. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, I have no doubt that the questions you guys are asking here is exactly why he's waffling, right? This and, you know, St. <laughs> Augustine looking at him sternly from the corner, right? Uh, is, is, uh, I, I am sure another reason why he's, uh, uh, why he's doing that. I'm joking about St. Augustine. Um, which is fun, by the way, and, and uh, of course, I hope everyone understands that I, I, whenever I joke with St. Augustine, I do it affectionately. Um, but um, anyway, he, um, I'm joking about St. Augustine, but when, I, when I'm making my jokes about St. Augustine, of course, what I am talking about is Tolkien's very clear desire to have Middle-earth consistent. With fundament you know, it, 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 he called it a fundamentally Catholic work, um, and I do not believe that that was window dressing. Tolkien meant it when he said that, right? And this is one of the things that he, you know, there are a couple points on which true Saint Augustine is was unlikely personally to call him to task for this point, um, except possibly post nineteen seventy three. But, um, uh, but he did have exchanges by letter and things with priests who were like, um, you know, tell me again about how death is a gift. Right. How does that how does that work? Exactly. Isn't death a curse and the consequence of sin? Um, so, you know, there are a couple issues. Right. There are a couple issues. And but this is not just a question of like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble or like, oh, I better do this. Right. No, like I, he There were a few places, as we can see, where his desire for consistency and that consistency that he wanted to build was also in part fundamental theological consistency uh, with Catholicism as well, um, was at war with some of the fundamental mythic concepts of his world. Right. Um. And this is clearly the biggest one. But again, what I find most fascinating about this passage is the way that we see him. Um, I don't know the date of this passage. I don't know if this came before or after he wrote the stuff about uh, the elves, you know, being brought in. And... Um, um, uh, and. Uh, Corrupted right I, I don't know if he wrote this before or after, but I would not be surprised by either one. If this was an early thing that he turned away from, I could easily believe that. If this is him coming back to this after he rejected it explicitly right in the margin of the annals, I could easily believe that too right um, What seems to be clear uh, is he is um, uh, is he's struggling with this right, and definitely waffling. Um, uh, okay. Um, yeah, Stephen says, whether you agree with his conclusions or not, you have to appreciate the thought and effort he put into the issues. Absolutely. 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 Um, uh, yeah, Kevin, exactly. He did believe in Augustine's theology himself, uh, and his secondary world wanted it too. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 um, I I the last thing I want to do in my probably irresponsible joking, but you really probably shouldn't joke about you know one of the four Latin patriarchs. But um, I can't help myself. That's I'm sorry, but uh, anyway, um, one of the risks that I take in making jokes about Saint Augustine uh, is lest I make it sound like he's just trying to like window dress, right? Like he feels some kind of external need to reconcile it. Kevin, I absolutely agree with you, right? This is what he himself did believe. Um, And so there is a way in which I I do think that in... You could say that there's like a... One thing that we could say in theory when we're comparing what he's doing here in like 1950, 1951 with what he did back in 1918 to 1920, right in the Book of Lost Tales period... We look at that early stuff and we look at this stuff. One way that you could characterize that is to say that his story is growing up, right? It was young. It was whimsical, right? It was immature. Um, it was not really fully formed. It didn't really hold together. It didn't really care if it didn't hold together. That wasn't what it was trying to do. Um, but it's growing up in a different way as well, right? Um there is a sense in which I've the metaphor I've often used uh, in the context of of our discussions here in the Mythgard Academy um, of when he decided to join the Lord of the Rings world and the Silmarillion world together was you know, so sort of t- he, he he had that firewall up right between the Hobbit story and his Legendarium and he took down the firewall um, at that point when writing the Lord of the Rings, um, but I f- think. And, you know, Kevin, again, speaking back to your point about his own personal theological beliefs, I think that once the firewalls came down, that had other implications, right? This no longer—this became the combination of this huge story, his magnum opus, right, that he's writing in the middle of, you know, in middle of his life. Remember, he started writing The Lord of the Rings when he was 46. That's when he started writing it, right? Right. And now it's 1951. He is 59 years old in 1951. Um, so we're not even talking about the middle of his life now, right? He is in the later stages of his life. And he has written his magnum opus. And what, what's more, at the same time, while writing his magnum opus, this story, which is the greatest, largest, fullest story he's ever written... Um, he's also decided to merge it with practically everything else he's ever written in his whole life. So, Kevin, it makes some sense, doesn't it? That he wants all the firewalls to come down, right? He wants that to be an expression of what he believes, right? Of his own... Um, of his own world as well, right? Like, you know, so um it was one thing to kind of toy with fairy traditions and toy with Norse mythology and and throw these things out and have fun with these stories back in the teens and 20s right but it seems like it's feels different now right and that i think is um um one of the one of the things that we uh that we can see happening here perhaps there's some pretty grandiose conclusions to be drawing from this passage, but uh, but uh, good discussion. Yeah, Nancy, I do agree with you. I, I, I agree that St. Augustine can take the teasing. Um, I might be wrong, but I kind of get the impression that he might not hate it. I don't know. Like I'd, I'd, I've got to say that St. Augustine always kind of seemed to me like the most fun-loving of all of the Latin patriarchs. But then again, like... When you're put in a category with St. Jerome, it's hard not to look like one of the most fun-loving, right? It's a pretty low bar to clear uh, when it comes to it. But, oh, good old St. Jerome. Um, anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> let's keep going before I get into more trouble. Um, all right. Um The actual text of LQ2, that is the later text, my father amended at this time, very hastily, to read, These were the Aalar spirits, who first adhered to him in the days of his splendor, and became most like him in his corruption. Their hearts were of fire, but they were cloaked in darkness, and terror went before them, they had whips of flame." Balrogs they were named by the Noldor in later days, and in that dark time Melkor bred many other monsters of divers shapes and kinds that long troubled the world, and his realm spread now ever southward over the Middle-earth. But the orcs, mockeries, and perversions of the children of Eru did not appear until after the awakening of the elves. So this is a, a later version of this passage, right? Um, but again, amended at this time. So we can see him waffling pretty hard, right? Here we have, Let's well, no, 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 wait. No manufactured Balrogs, right? We're going back, um, um, we're going back, uh, uh, to, um, uh, we're, we're going back to the Balrogs are born, not made, right? Um, these are some of the spirit, the Balrogs were there. They were part of the song. They were part of the, the brash, uh, braying chorus uh, alongside Melkor in the uh, in the music of the Ainur. Um, but notice, do you notice, you know, I don't want to read anything into it because it's consistent with both possibilities, but notice how ambivalent that last sentence is. The orcs, mockeries, and perversions of the children of Eru did not appear until after the awakening of the elves. That sentence would be perfectly consistent with either version. Right, either the manufactured or the corrupted orcs. Um, mockery, it depends on where you, whether you lay the stress more heavily on mockery or perversion. Right, if it's a mockery, if it's constructed in mockery of the elves. Right, oh yeah, I see your elves. Right, I'm gonna make my own little here. I got your elves right here. Right, that like uh, orcs are to elves as the desolation was to the greenness. Right is basically the the mockery issue, right? Um, Or are they perversions? Like, literally, perversions of the Children of Eru. That would be consistent with both. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, he um, really divided on this subject. Okay. Of all of the passages... In phase one, like in, in, in the entirety of what Christopher gave us there for phase one of the revisions of the Quenta, this is the passage that made my mouth drop open more than any other. At the last, therefore, the Valar summoned the Quendi to Valinor, there to be gathered at the knees of the gods in the light of the blessed trees forever. And Mandos, who had spoken not at all in the debate, broke silence and said, So it is doomed. For of this summons came many woes that after befell. Yet those who hold that the Valar erred, thinking rather of the bliss of Valinor than of the earth, and seeking to rest the will of Iluvatar to their own pleasure, speak with the tongues of Melkor. Whoa! Whoa! The tongues of Melkor. Right? If you think that the Valar were wrong, right? If you think that in inviting them... They screwed up, right? And they were being selfish and thinking only of the bliss of and neglecting Middle Earth. And if you were thinking that they were, like, being selfish, you are speaking with a tongue of Melkor, my friend. Holy cow. Whoo. Um. <laughs> Both David Attlee and Nancy at the same time were like, uh, I guess Silmfilm film is kind of in trouble. Yeah? Yeah. You know, what else is in trouble? The Book of Lost Tales is also in trouble. This is a massive reversal. The narrator in this parallel passage in the Book of Lost Tales explicitly says those things. Explicitly. Um, I mean, I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, like this is not just a reversal. This, this is like, um, you know, someone doth protest too much, I think, here, right? Um, I, um, and of course, the thing that I couldn't help but think of is the frame, right? Quoth whom, I wonder? We don't get a quoth after that sentence, but somebody's quoting there, right? Okay, come on now. Alfwina, Pengawath, or Rumil? Who is passing judgment? Who is the one who is saying, if you think the are made the wrong call, shame on you? Because that's an editorial comment, right? I mean, a purely editorial comment. Those who hold this speak with the tongues of Melkor. Okay, thank you. Is that Rumo? Is that Pengoa? Is that Alfina? We don't. We're not told. We're not told. Um, to me, the answer to that question would make. One of three different stories, right? If Alfwina, if this is from Alfwina, right? If there's an implicit quote Alfwina at the end of this, then I can I can understand that, right? That story would say to me Alfwina is perceived, when Pengalad told him the story, Alfwina perceives that the Vow are open to criticism on this point. But he, Alfwina, being very impressed by what Pengalad has conveyed to him about the glory, holiness, and majesty of the Valar, wants to step in and make sure that his readers, Alfwina's readers, the Anglo-Saxons reading this text, don't make that mistake, right? Um, I know it might sound like this, folks, but but you had to be there, right? If you were there, and you heard Pengolad tell you this, and you would never think this of the Valar, right? That is, to me, what um, uh, what that story would be if that's Alfwine. It could be Pengolad, right? It could be um, uh James, I agree. It seems a little overly certain for Alfwine. I don't think we've seen him make that kind of judgment call. Right, that kind of assertion about the proper interpretation of the story. Um, I'd be a little surprised if it were the Alfwina explanation. Um it could be Pengaloth. If it's Rumil, then it's I think that that's the, the most authoritative version, right? Rumil writing this in Tyrion, right? With like, I don't know, like circulating the draft of it among the Valar themselves, right? Uh Uh, You know, uh, if he's going to say that, that is an expression of very great conviction on the part of the elves who are in Valinor, right? But Penguath, as a former exile, Penguath, the survivor of Gondolin, right, is going to have a different point of view on the judgment of the Valar. Right. And specifically on the judgment of whether or not the elves should have left Middle-earth. Right. Um, Now, I agree that the really interesting question here, um, uh, Matt, is do I think that Tolkien is waffling? Or is this just like a a narrative frame play here? Um, It's possible that Tolkien was waffling. I doubt it, I doubt it, I doubt it. The reasons I doubt it are first, I don't see any reason, either from within the theology or within the mythology to make that change. I can see the reasons. Like, the reasons make sense why he's waffling on other points, right? But why waffle on this? The valor don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be infallible. That's not part of the deal, right? Um, no, nothing hinges on that exactly, right? There's no massive consequent negative... He doesn't have to retract that in order to make things work either theologically or mythically, right? If anything... um. Uh, if anything it the idea of the Valar making a mistake enhances the mythology was a crucial part of the mythology if you remember his letter to Milton Waldman um, I believe it's in the Milton Waldman letter I might be wrong about this um If it's not there, it's in one of the other letters that he wrote, kind of paraphrasing the backstory for folks, which he was always eager to do. Right. To give them the skinny on the Silmarillion that they hadn't read yet. Um, Like this element, the Valar screwing up uh, and inviting them to uh, uh, inviting the elves to Valinor when they shouldn't uh, when they when they did not have, as Sam might say, um, is uh, is like one of the like one of the one-sentence summaries he gave of, like, the whole (laughs) Silmarillion, right? So it's a core element of the mythology. And therefore, I could only see him waffling on that, uh, genuinely himself waffling on it, if there were some, like the free will issue, like the, um, you know, the, the Augustinian issue that we've been looking at and talking about. I don't see any such issue here. This is not God, Right. It's not a Luvatar screwing up. It's the Valar screwing up. Um, But um, uh, but I agree. um, Brian, that in the absence of a frame, that last sentence. It just. As you say, it sounds like scripture and it's jarring. I mean, like I like. Flinched back when I read that sentence. I'm like, whoa, whoo, okay. Tell me how you really feel, right? Uh, wow, okay. Um, so I think it's frame. My guess, I'm gonna, I would pin it on Pengrowth. Um, I would pin it, pin it on Pengrowth, and fit it into the context of a repentant former exiles perspective spoken from Elfenholm, right? And him wanting to make sure that Alfwina himself and Alfwina's future readers do not perpetuate this mistake. Don't go out there, Alfwina, I'm telling you these stories. Now, you better make sure that you don't go home and start badmouthing the Valar, right? That will never do. Um, so let's not do that. So let me make this perfectly clear. Tongue of Melkor. Are, are we, do we have an understanding about this? I, I can see Pengola doing that, right? The one way in which it does fit with how the the Silmarillion is shifting is the shifting towards a greater reverence and seriousness in the treatment of the Valar all the way through, right? They're never objects of fun anymore. We don't laugh at the Valar. Maybe at Tolkis a little bit, right? He's of no avail as a counselor. That's kind of funny every time. But um but really, by and large, um uh even him being really tuckered out and taking a nice nap after his wedding is kinda of funny. But um but again, by and large, they're not objects of fun anymore. So it's kinda of part of that shift in a way. Um but um uh <laughs> exactly George, you laugh with Tolkis. Don't laugh at Tolkis. I I agree. Uh that would be foolish <laughs> foolish to do certainly um but uh yeah yeah um yeah you're right david Urbuck. uh no valor was assigned humor uh, as their trait it's true um but um anyway okay we can sort of move on from this uh but um but as i say i certainly found that very striking uh, and we know that sentence the tongues of melkor business is not going to uh make it to the published silmarillion right he's not going he, he he's not going to land there um i don't want to spend a whole lot of time with this i just love this passage um as he's going through and revising the quenta looking back over the quenta silmarillion talking things to himself I know what is missing, right? I know what will make this work the most compelling and unforgettable work that anyone has ever read. There aren't enough names, right? We need more <laughs> names, longer catalogs. That's, that's what it was missing. Um, other names in song and tale are given to these peoples. The Vanyar are the Blessed Elves, and the Spear Elves, the Elves of the Air, the friends of the gods the holy elves and the immortal and the children of Ingwe, they are the fair folk and the white the noldor are the wise and the golden the valiant the sword elves the elves of the earth the foes of melkor the skilled of hand the jewel wrights the companions of men the followers of Finwe. the Teleri are the foam riders the singers of the shore the free and the swift and the arrow elves they are the elves of the sea the shipwrights, the swan herds, the gatherers of pearl, the blue elves, the people of Olway. The Nandor are the host of Dan, the wood elves, the wanderers, the axe elves, the green elves, and the brown, the hidden people. And those that come at last to Osiriand are the elves of the seven rivers, the singers unseen, the kingless, the weaponless, and the lost folk, for they are now no more. The Sindar are the Lemberi, the lingerers. They are the friends of Ossay, the elves of the Twilight, the Silvern, the Enchanters, the wards of Melian, the kindred of Luthian, the people of Elway, quoth Pengaloth. All right, so there we go. Glad we got that sorted out. Um, uh, I, um, <laughs> Brian says, if only my publishers had seen all these names back in 1937, yeah, they would never have been able to resist, would they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, (laughs) David Adley says no passage was ever more justly cut. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, here's what I like about this. Why don't we, we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about this. I couldn't forbear to, to, to quote it because I think it's delightful, uh, in its way. Um, but here's the fun thing, right? Um, this is a very rich passage. Uh, not, not perhaps for your casual first-time Silmarillion reader, um, but if you're trying to capture, like, what do the different kindreds of elves mean to Tolkien? What are they about? What are they like? Right? Um, the, the sheer quantity of data that he is giving in this passage is extremely useful, right? All of these points from which we can begin to sort of build and kind of triangulate, right? What is the essence of, like, vanyar right? And Noldority, Noldority. yeah, yeah. Um, and Teleritude, right? What is the, uh, what, what is, um, what are these elves really about? This passage would be a great one. Right. To say uh, because it gives you when you add up all of these things, when you consider these these names and concepts as individual data points. Right. And then you think about what is the pattern here? What are the um, you know, what is the composite picture that all of these images, labels, uh, names and epithets all bring together? Um, I um, um, I think it creates a really a really fascinating picture, right? And, and gives us in some sense more about the different elf kindreds than we get almost anywhere else. So, um, I just wanted to kind of commend it for that reason. Uh, but, um, uh, I don't have too much else to say about it right now. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, David, I agree. Any several of these epithets or names taken individually would be quite inscrutable, right? I mean, David, to cite some of the examples that you gave, if you just out of nowhere, right, in a random passage said, and then they meant some people of the axe elves. <laughs> what does that mean? Why are they axe elves, right? That could give you not just perhaps a mistaken impression. Of, uh, of the the elves of Assyrian, right? Because it's the elves of Assyrian, right? It's the Nandor, yeah, yeah, the Nandor. Who are the axe elves, right? are like, oh, so they were big into logging, right? That's what the Nandor are all about, right? That's they they they're all that like. So the Nandor are lumberjacks and they're okay, right? That's our that's our conclusion, right? I mean, as we know from the stories that is almost the opposite of the truth. In fact, it's quite the opposite of the truth. Um, uh, So that's obviously not what that means, right? So what does it mean? Well, we can only learn by looking at it in the context of all the other, all these other things, right? Um, uh, Anyway, we don't get quite enough about the Nandor, I think to uh, uh, fully really put that together. Um, But, um, but yeah, it's, really interesting there. Um, And the Blue Elves, I agree. Why blue? What does that tell us about them? Right? Um, About the the Tileri that they're called the Blue Elves. Again, but when we put it together with Elves of the Sea, um, uh, Singers of the Shore, the Free, the Swift, the Arrow Elves, and I agree, the Singers singers of the Shore, who was, somebody was talking about that. Yeah, Nancy. Uh, He's that That's him pulling out the old... Does anyone else re, re, remember the old name, right? Uh, that he's bringing out there? That he, he's, he's, he put in his drawer, right? But it's the Shoreland Pipers. Yeah, the Solosimpi. That was the original name of the Teleri. And the Vanyar were originally called the Teleri, and the Teleri were called the Solosimpi, the Shoreland Pipers. Um, so there they are, singers of the shore. They don't pipe anymore, but they're still singing uh, on the shore, um, so, uh, so yeah, we're, we're, we you know, he, 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 he's not lost. He doesn't call him that anymore, but he still thinks of him that way. Right. Um, yeah, very good. Very good. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I just wanted to kind of point out that passage cause it's a really fun example. Um, it would be a really fun exercise just to kind of sit down with this passage and see what conclusions we could draw actually. Um, and how this, that passage elucidates some of the other stories. I think we could actually get some really good stuff there. But we don't have world enough in time, so let's move on. Um, because here we are beginning to get at, and just in time, as we're almost out of time, um, uh, to one of these larger points that I was pointing to earlier on um, when I was talking about why on earth is he still doing the Quenta and the Annals separately. This is Christopher's commentary. In the Annals of Amon, the whole matter is treated from a different point of view. There, the events and geography that is, the, the, we're talking about the uh, migration of the, of the elves across Middle Earth. Um, there, the events and geography of the Great Journey are a central element, but the complexities of naming and classification are not. It is clear, however, that the Annals of Amman was not written until the revision of the Quenta tradition concerning the sundering of the elves was virtually complete. For in the annals of Amman, the Nandor are from the host of Olwe, and the followers of Elwe, who were left behind, called themselves Egloth, the forsaken people. Okay, so in this one instance, and again, he seems to be going back and forth, as Christopher says later on. In this instance, Christopher says, argues that the evidence of the text suggests that he wrote this stuff, the Quintus stuff that we've just been reading, first, and then wrote the annals of Amon. So having done this, he goes back and he writes what many readers would call a practically identical narrative. But Christopher is right. There is a different point of view. And the difference in point of view comes down the way that I would describe it is what the two stories are interested in. Right. The annals are interested in events and geography and characters, I would say. This, we got a lot of digressions, not just the super digression we were just looking at, right? The catalog of all the names and epithets of the different kindreds, right? But think about all those details we got about the people of Don splitting off and when they came back and everything else. Um, Not to mention all of those classification things. Like who counts as Caliquendi and all of those th- like those passages, which always I had to make charts on the chalkboard for in my undergraduate Tolkien class. Like, OK, so what's an Uminyar exactly? And how does that differ from the Caliquendi and what like all that stuff? Right. When he's break, not only showing how they're divided, but. showing different conceptions of how those sort of fit together and how they work and how they're related to each other and all of those things. Um, Not to mention that catalog of names that we were just looking at. That's what the Quinta is. The Quinta is interested in those things. The Annals show no interest in those things whatsoever. The fact that the textual evidence suggests that this came first is to me more interesting, actually. Um, I I could see it as a mere addition. Had he written the annals first, this annals passage first, and then written the Quintus stuff, I could could imagine him saying, okay, I fleshed out the, you know, I, I, I worked out the basic outline, right, of their journey. Fine. Now let's do some classification, right? Let's roll up our sleeves and really get into defining terms and sorting things out, right? If that's the order in which it happened, it would seem to me like a mere, potentially, a mere elaboration of what he already had. But if Christopher's correct, and I see no reason to think he's not, um, if Christopher's correct that he wrote this stuff first and then wrote the annals, it's to me much more interesting. His first thing was sorting out the categories and getting everything square, right? Working off of, presumably, his old linguistic treatises, right? The Tree of Tongues and all that stuff. Right? Which is where all the divisions and, and categorizations all came from. Right? So the first thing he does in the, is he's writing the Quinta. And in the Quinta he's sorting out all these things. Right? And then he's going to go back and he's going to rewrite that same text. But he is going to rewrite it from a different point of view. A point of view he's going to write a text which is not so interested in those other things. In the categories and the names and all that stuff. Um... So instead, he uh, uh, writes a different version of the story. Um, This is where, this kind of thing is where I begin to have an inkling where I begin to, in my own imagination... Now, keep in mind, this is just me imagining. This is crit fic pure and simple. That is, me making up a story about how the text was written. And we know what C.S. Lewis says about those stories. They are almost always wrong. So please take what I'm saying here with a grain of salt. This is my conclusion based on what we can see in the text, but I have no way of knowing that this was true. However, (laughs) With that with that uh disclaimer, I will go on to give my conclusion, which is this gives me something to latch on to, as some way of understanding why he's going back and forth and keeping these two texts going at the same time. Because it's not they're no longer really different genres. Right? That's gone. He's left the annals but when the annals were annals, they were different genres. Right? But let's think back a second. Think back to the 1937 Silmarillion material. The first version of the annals and the, you know, the 1937 version of the Quinta. Remember, that was a revision. He had done the Quinta in earlier on, and that came in turn from the sketch of the mythology that he did back in 1926 to 28. Um, So the Quinta was in its third version in 1937. At least third. Um, and that was where he was developing the story in that plot summary mode, right? That oh, that historical overview mode, right? Um, the annals, he adds. At the same time that he's writing the at least third version of the Quinta, he starts doing the annals. Why? What's the impulse for the annals at all? Well, the in their first version, when they were really annals, when they actually sounded like Appendix B of The Lord of the Rings, right, The Tale of Years, it made sense because we don't get all those details, right? Seeing a sketchy outline of all of the plot points of the story with dates attached so that we can begin to understand the flow of the story and see how much time passed between point A and point B, which doesn't isn't incorporated in the narrative, right? Um, whether this was what motivated to do him to do it or not, I don't know. But what seems to happen in the Annals and the Quenta in, back in 1937, one is the vehicle of the story, of the narrative, right? And that's the Quenta. And the other, the Annals, is the vehicle of, like, world building, Basically, like, I want to go through and I want to sort it out. I want to I want to I want to organize these events. I want to make sure it's I want to make sure it works. I want to iron it out. And I want to show my work. Right. I want to share that with people just like he's going to share Appendix B. Right. And give us the tale of years so that we can see how everything works through. Right. That seems to me a very Tolkien way to approach things. We know how much he liked working everything out and making sure. I mean, goodness, think back to, or no, wait, at that point, we're 1937, think ahead uh, to all of the timeline stuff he's going to be doing in the Lord of the Rings, trying to make sure everything works. Right. Makes perfect sense. What's happening now in 1951? Why is he still uh, he's one thing that's happened is that the annals aren't annals anymore. So what has happened? What kind of thing can we see happening here? The same. Why is he still maintaining the two texts? Because they're still performing the same roles. They've just switched. Now the annals have grown into the main vehicle of the story. And that's why, as we were reading the annals, for those of us who know the published Silmarillion really well, we're here in the published Silmarillion through a huge chunk of it, George, as you were commenting on, it, it is very remarkable how much of these annals, these phase one annals make it into the published Silmarillion, right? That The annals that he is revising there is something which Christopher Tolkien could look back in, you know, the, the early 70s and say, that is the most mature version of that story that my father ever wrote. I'm going to include that, Right. That's what the annals had become in this version. But he's still doing the Quinta. Why? Maybe because he still has that impulse, that need, that desire to work stuff out, to organize things. Uh, and so what's he, do- how is he doing that? He's doing that on the uh, on the draft, right, on the manuscript of the old version of the Quinta. Right? The annals has has grown into something else. The Quenta is now growing into something else. It's still much more similar. I mean, the two texts are way closer to each other than the old annals and the old Quenta were, right? So it's not only a mere switch. It's a switch and also a growing closer together, right? Um, but that's the only um, that's the only thing... That I in, in in looking through this stuff, this is the the main thing that I've been kind of clinging to as because I I totally agree. I think that Christopher's insight here is exactly right. There are as stories as narratives. The two things are di- are interested in different kinds of things, right? Then when you add into that the fact that Tolkien's stories always grow when he's writing, right? So even if Even if he were self-consciously thinking, I'm going to keep working on the, I'm going to, I'm I'm, now I'm going to use the Quenta as a way to work through and organize my ideas. Well, in the, in the, in the process of organizing and working through those new ideas keep coming out, right? So new stuff and new passages and new bits of dialogue continue to emerge, um, which themselves are going to make the published text because of course they do. That's how he thinks. That's what happens when he writes. That's what the, the guy can't make a list. Without ending up with a story, right? Uh, I mean, we've seen that time and again. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And Brian, I do agree with you. It does not, Brian is pointing out that it, it doesn't even, like when you think about it, it doesn't even seem very strange that the annals should grow into this kind of narrative, right? As you're writing out the story, moving from one event to the next and really, you know, mapping the whole story out, you know, again, in this like compressed plot summary way, it's very natural that that should expand in the writing and, and, and grow out. I agree. I, I, I can easily see that happening. Um, and yeah, Jennifer, they there there's, they're very porous in their boundaries, uh, in this way. Um, Agreed. Agreed. Um, Well, let's go on a little bit here. Uh, Some more more elf journey stuff. Osei followed them, and when they were come near to their journey's end, he called to them, and they begged Olmo to halt for a while, so that they might take leave of their friend and look their last upon the sky of stars. For the light of the trees that filtered through the passes of the hills filled them with awe, and Olmo understood well their hearts, and granted their request, and at his bidding, Ossay made fast the island, and rooted it in the foundations of the sea. Then Olmo returned to Valinor, and made known what had been done, and the Valar for the most part were ill-pleased. But the island could not again be moved without great hurt, or without peril to the Teleri who dwelt thereon. And it was not moved, but stood there alone for many an age. No other land lay near it, and it was called... Tall Arisea, the Lonely Isle. There the Teleri long had their home, and Ossë was often among them, and they learned of him strange musics and sea lore, and he brought to them sea birds, the gift of Yavanna, for their delight. But this, by this long sojourn of the Teleri apart in the Lonely Isle, was caused the sundering of their speech from the language of the Lindar, changed to Vanyar, and the Noldor. Couple things about this. I don't want to. I don't want to take too long on this passage. But um, first, what do you hear in that last sentence? Hear any echoes of any earlier texts in that last sentence? I mean, yes. A passage like this was in the Quenta. Uh, there's that, of course. My marginal commentary on that last sentence would be. The Hlamas lives, right? The Tree of Tongues, still alive and well. We can still see clearly the origins of these stories in Tolkien's linguistic and, uh, uh, you know, language creation process, right? We, when we were talking about the Tree of Tongues in the Lost Road class, as we were looking at the, that 1937 material... Um, I found that extremely illuminating going through the flammes like we did um, because you can really feel there what he means when he says in the prologue to the second edition of The Fellowship of the Ring um, that, you know, the story was, was primarily linguistic and inspiration, right? What exactly does that mean and how seriously does he really mean that, right? And in the flammes, you can see it super clearly, Right. That so many of the sto- like that you really he really begins with this almost theoretical uh, collection. Like, let me think of all of the different ways in which language change, language diverge, uh, 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 like language diver- divergence, language confluence, uh, language cross influence. Right. Uh, Let me imagine all of the, like, theoretically possible scenarios there, right? And uh, let me try to, and and let me, like, play with what kind of, you know, so first I'll invent a language, right? And then I'm going to ring it through all of these changes and put it through all of these different combinations and see what happens. Because that's going to be so much fun, right? And then having done that, now I need to make... Stories for that right uh now and and then, and so the and the stories emerge right the elves, the green elves of Osirian, right they happen because we we need that particular thing what happens when you 've got this separation and then this reconvergence and this cross influence between assyrian and doriath right uh, I mean yeah I mean see so these are this is the, it's, it's a linguistic situation then explained historically right um Sure. Uh, but it's not gone away, right? He could have lost it. He could have, st- I mean, that was a while ago now. And he can still continue his, uh, his, his, uh, like, he could separate it, right? He could still have his philological fun over here, but let his story continue to go in these ways. But no, he's still the story still bears those markers. It still retains the shape that is given to it by the by the Hlamas, right? By the original philological situation. So that's one thing that really strikes me about this passage. Um, Another thing. The most awkward part of this passage. I love this paragraph. There's so much to love about it. Um the attitude of os the relationship of Ossay and, uh, the Teleri, um, almost relationship with both Asse and the Teleri, um, the disappointment of the Valar and yet their blessing of the elves, that sense of approaching paradise, but waiting from a distance, right. And being in awe, um, feeling desire and yet fear. There's so many, like, deep mythic elements that are conveyed in this paragraph. They're, they're really delightful. The grace of Yvanna, right, giving the gifts of the, you know, even though she's disappointed that they haven't come. There are all kinds of things here. Um, strange lore, and, or sea lore and strange music, right? All kinds of really great stuff. But then in the middle of it, there's this one bit which stands out to me but the island could not again be moved without great hurt or without peril to the Teleri who dwelt thereon. Really? Why? I mean, he ripped it out the first time. Didn't seem to do anybody any harm, right? Um. Why, why... I mean, sure, I'm not saying it's implausible. I'm not saying it's ridiculous. I'm just saying the first thing I'm saying, whether or not you are willing to grant this element of secondary belief, right? Notice that we are being asked for secondary belief here, right? Of a particular kind. He asks. And answers the why question. Why not? Why couldn't they move the island? Oh, you know, because um uh it couldn't be moved without great hurt or without peril to the Teleri who dwelt thereon. Personally, I'm not enormously moved by that explanation. But that's not my point. My point is that I'm interested that he's giving that explanation, right? Um uh yeah yeah um <laughs> Marilyn says, I think Omo made sure it was impossible, yeah, yeah, uh, um exactly, uh Omo kind of reminds me of like my teenage son here, but, oh no, that's impossible, yeah, no, I'd like to. I really would like to do that, but I, no, I just it's not I can't do it. I wish I could, but I really just can't <laughs> right, okay, right, yeah, sorry, it's all impractical there, um again. I'm not. It's. I, I. I'm not saying it's a horrible explanation. Don't. Don't. Don't miss the point. The point is he's making an explanation, and he, he's making that kind of explanation, right? This is not the kind of explanation he was used to make. Um, this is a. This is a newer kind of thing, right? Um, and again, this is in some ways, this is one of the things that is replacing the whole myth of explanation shtick that he used to do in his myths, right? But also, this is another one of... This is a very small instance, a tiny little ripple of this other impulse, which is... I don't want to say at war with his mythic impulse because it implies that they're just totally incompatible, which is not true at all. But... This impulse, which is often going to be uh, at odds with his mythic impulse, um, uh, um, it's this is the flat Earth problem, right? This is I I, I this is a an instance of the exact species of problem that's leading him to speculate on the round earth from the beginning um to feel embarrassed about the flat earth um and feel like he can't do it and needs to shift that right i can see the same thing but so it's just this is just one of the other other reasons why this passage jumped out at me again this passage is like 95% myth and 5% scientific explanation right but it's that 5% that I find fascinating. That it exists. It didn't, we didn't used to be there, right? It was 100 nothing before. Now we ha- that impulse is still showing up and it's going to create issues, right? The round earth hasn't gone away. Um, he's going to be thinking about that. This is going to be a crisis which is going to be a similar degree of crisis, uh, with his um, um, with his orc free will crisis right his Augustinian crisis um, and the other one which I alluded to earlier but which we have not yet seen emerge in the story and that is the death question the death as a gift of a luvatar issue and the heterodoxy the apparent heterodoxy of that doc- of that doctrine um, in the Catholic context. Um, So there again, he's going to have his own beliefs and his myth uh, kind of butting heads a bit, or at least having some issues that need to be resolved. We've not seen that come... We've not been talking about that one because we haven't seen it come up in the text yet. But of course, he is going to be thinking about that more as we move forward. And, spoilers, he is going to work out what I think is a fairly triumphant resolution of that issue in the athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth um, that we will read later on in this volume. Um, All right. Um, I'm going to stop there. We're not quite done with um, uh, with phase one, but that's okay. It was a bonus class anyway. I was supposed to be on vacation this week, so uh anyway we 're still actually well not quite ahead of schedule, but we 're not behind either so we're we're doing fine um uh, so let 's end it there we'll finish up phase one and begin phase two next time. Um, phase two is like a hundred pages long in the text. Um, I believe I scheduled the readings for like i split it in half into fifty page readings. I think I can confidently say, given how much of phase one we still have to talk about, there is no way we're going to talk about 50 pages of phase two uh, in, uh, uh, in, in next week. So uh, go ahead. Like, like the first quarter, I don't off the top of my head, I don't can't give you a page number, but somewhere like a quarter of the way through is probably where we're going to get. So if you're getting behind in the reading or something, don't uh, don't feel you've got to read all the way up to page 250 or whatever, whatever it is. But all right. Thanks, everybody really fun class. Uh, thanks for coming along here with me and helping me work this stuff out. I am, uh, I, once again, in this class, I am learning so much, um, about Tolkien and his writing and, uh, this whole Silmarillion project. Although the reading is, is difficult. I think the first half of Morgoth's ring is the hardest to read of any of the, uh, texts, any part of the history of Middle earth that we've read so far. Um, But it's been really, really rewarding to work through it together with you guys. So I I very much appreciate that. Thanks, everybody. Good night. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org.